Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Welcome back to Coaching Inside the Box, episode 36, where we're not going to just talk about youth soccer. We're going to talk about the impact or what happens at the highest levels of the game, whether that be in Brazil, whether that be in the giant super clubs across Europe, and how we, not our club, but how uh, youth soccer clubs have followed their path and their structure and their priority system, and maybe not done it exactly the right way. Andy... We talk often in Kansas City about how um, uh, the biggest player in town, the biggest professional game, is also now the biggest youth game with sporting Kansas City, having youth affiliates all across Kansas City. And we talk how that impacts youth soccer, not just us specifically in terms of our club in Kansas City, but about the impact it has on the youth game all across Kansas City, across all clubs. And you've had some interactions with Peter Vermes, Lord of all things sporting. Um, what are what are some of his perspectives that he shared with you um, related to to how we and our club fits into the Kansas City youth landscape and, and the sporting KC monster as a whole? Let's get back to Peter in a minute. It's always a joke. <laughs> no, it's not a joke. This is a very serious topic today. Okay. You know, a, a lot of the audience here is not seeing what I'm seeing. You know, and you turn up wearing an, an American football shirt. It's Super Bowl week and my Kansas City Chiefs I, made it. I don't care about your Kansas City Chiefs. We're here to, you know, to talk about, you know, the world's greatest sport, not some wannabe sport that, you know, will never, ever be able to compete with the world's greatest sport, right, Philippe? A hundred percent. I totally, yeah. I'm a soccer guy through and hey, through. We're doing this podcast on our own. You're out. <laughs> you're, you're, and I think you're. Andy's mad that in here he has to call his own sport soccer instead of football. <laughs> Which for me never made sense because football is played 99% with their hands and it's called football. It's hand egg ball. It's hand egg ball. Yeah. I, it, you're not going to, you're not going to get me disagreeing with any of these statements. And I didn't I, think you'd notice. It's a black T-shirt with some small print on on the on the then, left. Breast. And then I found out that it's football because the ball is one foot long. And I thought, how dumb! That is that? not true. That is not why. It's so why football. is it called football? I well, it was it was built out of rugby, kind of a rugby football game, and it, over time slowly became a different game. Than but you you than use your feet less than you use in rugby, if I'm not mistaken. Because uh, in rugby they actually yeah, pass with their feet, it, it, right? Sometimes it changed over time. That would be my understanding. But this is definitely not the topic of today's podcast. How American football became. Uh, Andy, uh, do you want to continue on the football front, or do you want to move into uh, youth soccer? I want to talk about real football. Yes, I want to continue on the football front. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Peter Vermees. Well, yeah. I mean, youth. Uh, Soccer at the highest levels, right? Not just from a viewing perspective, from a business perspective, the way it's structured, um, you know, Brazilian players. I mean, these are all things we're going to talk about today. The the old Brazil, you know, 20 years ago and the players staying in Brazil for a, a longer period of time before transferring to Europe for big money. The the best super clubs uh, all across Europe, they, they treat their academies so differently now than they did 30 years ago. Um, and that has had a knock-on effect, I think, specifically um, in Kansas City. 
20 years ago, Sporting KC didn't exist. Then Sporting KC started to exist. Um, uh, and they kind of dipped their toe in the youth game, uh, specifically their toe in the youth game, just from an academy perspective, taking the best players from all the clubs, putting them into the uh, MLS Academy to try, I assume, to create or to develop uh, players for their first team. That has totally changed. Now Sporting KC has, I don't know, 15 affiliates all across the Midwest, most of which are here in 22. Kansas City. 22 affiliates all across the Midwest, most of which are here in Kansas City. Um, it seems like every every year there's a new random Actually, A-licensed There's more coach. affiliates now around the region than there are in Kansas City. Are there? Okay, yeah, forgive yeah. me. Um, but the, every year there seems to be a new A-licensed fancy coach who has zero background in youth soccer um, uh, specific to Kansas City or, or in the, the starting of a club that they just put on a uh, on a flyer, pass it out and say, hey, we've got this new club here in, in Kansas City North uh, and our coach used to coach in Morocco. What do you think? Could you come join us? I mean, there's so many things wrong about the, and from my perspective, about the approach that they've taken for growing the game. Um, and and I, and I think that that's, that's an opportunity for us to kind of unpeel that onion and look at um, uh, structurally um, why that's happened. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I've known Peter a long time, and I've got great respect for Peter. In the cynical world of professional soccer, and it's a very cynical world, you know, you have to win in order to keep your job. He's managed to keep his job in longer than anybody else. A very long time, more than a decade. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, he's, he's been uh, inordinately successful, you know, in terms of win-loss percentage, which is what has kept him in his job. But remember, it's totally cynical. It's about winning. And you have to get, you know, positive wins at the end of the day on the score sheet. And there's a number of times during that tenure, I thought he was on thin ice. And then somehow he clawed it back. Somehow he turned it around. Somehow he started getting wins again, you know, and saved his job. I would have thought from a board that was looking at, you know, is this time to get rid of Peter? You know, but he's, he's, he's not just a survivor, though. He's, you know, in, in ultimate terms, he's a success because at the professional level, it's not about developing players. It's about winning, pure and simple. You know, and if you win ugly, the fans are happy. If you win beautiful, the, hands are pro- the fans are probably happier. You know, but you know, it, it, winning ugly is okay because winning is the most important thing. The unfortunate thing is that's been translated into the youth game. And you know, if you're ever going to win beautiful like Brazil used to do, you know, I'm sorry, but I don't think they are winning as beautifully as they used to. If you're ever going to win beautifully, you have to develop players that are artistic, that are creative, that can do amazing things with the ball. And, you know, we have uh, an environment that's grown and developed around the world where the rich get richer and they rob the poorer countries, the ones that are actually doing a better job either through culture or coaching uh, of developing you know, really talented dribblers, goal scorers, quick, incisive, penetrating passes. You know, the, the bigger clubs around the world rob those countries of their amazing talent. And talk about Brazil. You know, that's happened to an incredible degree in Brazil, right? No, 100%. If you look at the national team, uh, of this past World Cup, I believe there were like three or four out of 26, it used to be 23, uh, that played in Brazil. And when we won in 2002, out of the th- uh, 23, we had 12 that played in Brazil and 11 that played outside of Brazil. And it's becoming, the players are starting to get interest 
by the European clubs way younger than than ever. So there's a kid in Santos, he's nine, and he already has had a $1 million contract with Nike, and all the big clubs in Europe are already all over this kid. Um, You see, you know, Coutinho was sold when he was 16. Vini Jr. was sold when he was 16. Rodrigo was sold when he was 16. They're not even allowed to play in Europe when they're 16. They have to finish in Brazil until they're 18 on a loan, and then they have to get transferred out. And it's Am I right in, in hearing that uh, Ronaldinho's girlfriend just had a baby boy in Barcelona, gave him a million-dollar contract? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that, but I wouldn't be surprised. Um, but I think that, you know, looking at in history... Brazil used to have, you know, back in the Pele days and stuff, the league was incredibly strong and the whole national team came from Brazil. Like the players didn't really go to Europe and they made our league strong. They made our culture stronger and, you know, they stayed. In the late 90s, you know, we would, the Brazilian teams would go play the European teams and in the FIFA Club World Cup and they would beat them most of the time or they would, you know, play well and but lose the game and stuff and it wasn't like it is nowadays that most most of the times they just go into the fan and sometimes they win because they find a goal you know they they counter and they defend well they get organized uh, I also think the Brazilian teams and they they care way more about that competition than the European clubs but I think that's what what's happened you know the players are starting to go to Europe too early and it's affecting our domestic product. So, so what I'm hearing you saying is what you just said, right? Is that that the the Brazil national team has been negatively impact, back, impacted um, by the commercial interests of these big super clubs buying Brazilian players too young. Um, uh, again, these big super clubs, um, commercial interests are, are different. Uh, the objective is a little bit different, significantly different than developing players for the Brazilian national team. But I think I think English fans um, would would make the same argument that the Man Cities of this world, that the Manchester Uniteds of this world, that the Arsenals of this world, um, their their super club status and enthusiasm for buying talent from other places has negatively impacted the national team of, of, of England. And, and, and I think you could probably extrapolate that out across, across, you know, other super clubs, um, uh, across Europe. And so I guess, I guess the, it begs the question is the commercial interest of, of the super clubs. Is it, is that in the best interest of the world sport? Uh, or or maybe not, maybe just in the best interest of those super clubs. Well, you look at Real Madrid. I, I had a parent the other day text, text on the team's nap, you know, a game between Real Madrid and Getafe on U14, same age of my boys. And I'm looking like, oh, look at how these players play at that age. And I look at it and I think, who has Real Madrid developed in the, their first team in the last I don't know, 20 years, Marco Asensio, that doesn't even start there. They have Brazilian players that are younger than him, playing over him, that just got bought, Vini, Rodrigo, and stuff. I mean, other than Asensio, and he came from Mallorca, and I don't think he, he was there that young. They don't develop anybody. There's no space for these kids. You look at Man City, Phil Foden, and who else? It's all international players. It's all international stars or English players that they acquire later on, and the list so on and so on and so on. PSG, who is gonna PSG is gonna break through the first team? No, 
nobody. There's no space for these kids. So these kids grew in their academy and they start getting loaned out to smaller clubs and, you know, most of them kind of fade out. And I think I understand from a professional team standpoint, obviously these teams are winning, but it's hurting their development. You look at Spain that won the World Cup and won two Euros back-to-back. They had, it was the generation that Barcelona developed all these great players and, you know, once they got older, Barcelona started doing the opposite. You saw Barcelona buying Coutinho, buying Aguero, buying Memphis Depay, and so on, so on, so on. And it didn't work. Like, up until now, now they're leading the La Liga, but they haven't really made an impact since those days. So these super clubs have, have bought so much talent, they can't put all the talent on the field as a way to, um, as a way to protect their investment, as a way to um, uh, put a fence around it and keep other, other teams away from potentially quality players. And that's been, I think, we make the argument to the detriment of the development of those players into the game as a whole. Andy, have we seen similar scenarios where um, power players within the youth game in the United States have created um, uh, monopolies or tried to create a boys club um, that, that, that puts a fence around development that keeps ever, uh, other people out? Have we seen that play out, not just in, on the world stage, but also domestically in the youth game? Well, I, I don't want to get tied up into just criticism. Okay. This podcast, I think, has become so incredibly popular because we offer solutions. Yeah. And to back up just a little bit and talk about Peter Vermees, Peter had the depth of character and the honesty to bring all the youth soccer clubs together around the table. Uh, and he did it because he wanted all the youth clubs to do what we had been doing, pushing our youth, best youth players up to you know, I say up to Sporting Youth Academy, uh, when in reality our players go to Sporting Youth Academy and at least we feel they go backwards because the coaching philosophy is about winning. It's about using the player's ability to win, even at the youth level, at the cost of what we do, which is we make them able to create the win you know, sometimes single-handedly on their own for the team. Like Leo Messi and, and Kylian Mbappe did in, in the World Cup, you know, making the big plays, beating people, scoring the great goals. And, you know, this is what we give to sport in. And, you know, what ends up, you know, happening is within two or three years, those players that we felt had the potential to be, uh, you know, great players at the highest level of the game have been actually discouraged from taking people on, from beating people, from going for it, you know, from taking shots from 25, 30 yards out, from, you know, doing the things that made them what Sporting, I, I think, wanted in the first place. So, 100%. But, so, 100%. But to let me be the devil's advocate here for a moment. I think Sporting would say, no, 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 our focus is on development. We want these players that come into our academy to develop into future players for our first team. And, and so they would they would they would take take uh, um, offense at what you just said, but let me put it a different way. This is using their language. We want to develop these players within our system, 
And so, and I think that's the criticism you have of Brazilian players going to Europe so soon is that they get, they get funneled into your, you play this role and this role does this in a much more structured conservative manner. And we would argue that that structured conservative manner at a younger age, or really at most ages, um, is a negative to the, to, it brings the ceiling of a player down significantly and it's not nearly as beautiful of a game. And one of the things that I really admire in Brazil and I've been through the youth system there and I still kind of follow because I see the players that come through and they really, really value the kids and the young talent and the focus is not to win. They see a kid that hasn't hit a growth spur at 13, 14 and he's really tiny. He's still not super effective in games and they take care of that kid because they see three four years ahead and i think that's the key kids have different growth spurs they develop differently some kids get too big too soon and obviously gives them an advantage to be effective at that moment and i the brazilian teams have the ability to understand those things and give other kids their talent maybe they're not going to be thrown in games uh, you know all the time but they're there they're training they schedule diff- they have you know, a, a vast number of kids in a roster, like 50 kids. So they schedule different games. So everybody's playing and gives the chance to all these kids develop because they know if they find one or two real talents, that that's the key. That's that's what they need. And that's, that's a philosophy that they have. And they're not super concerned on winning. You see clubs like Santos, Flamengo, Fluminense, uh, Palmeiras, you know, they've been successful in the first team game as well. But their youth academy, they're always forming fantastic players. They're always bringing players to the first team. They always give opportunity to the kids. And, you know, you look at many teams in the Brazilian league that were successful. And a lot of times it's the generation that they developed a lot of talent. You had Diego and Robinho for Santos and then you had Neymar and, and, and Ganso, you know, at Santos as well. And, you know, and the list goes so on, so yeah. on. But and I think that's where we're missing. You know, the Brazil has become a farm club. You know, Brazil, you know, they're producing these, you know, these, you know, great younger players up to a certain point, you know. And then, you know, because of the economic necessity to keep their club afloat, you know, they have to sell them on to Manchester City. You know, and, and 100%. so, you know, we, you know, other clubs around the country, uh, sorry, other clubs around the world. And, and so what's happening is that's when the creative development of these players actually goes into the tank. Correct. And players that have incredible potential, players that could have been maybe not as good as Pelé, but, you know, in the same team as Pelé, you know, on the same page as Pelé, you know, they go to these other clubs and they become lesser human beings. You know, because they're not encouraged to be that go-for-it, creative, will-of-the-wisp type player that can drop in and out of a game but step up and score two incredible goals that end up making the difference between a win and a loss. And, and the other thing is, it's, think about an 18-year-old kid, 17-year-old kid, already getting a contract with Man City. The kid comes from the favela and they get... They move to a completely different culture, completely different weather. I mean, I moved to America when I was 21, and it was hard. Imagine if I was a kid that came from the favela and went way younger than that by myself, you know, and I've never 
been on a airplane before i've never had a car i never had anything you know from a financial perspective and now i'm making millions these kids go completely crazy like it's it hurts them and a lot of them are not mentally stable enough to handle that whole success and as andy said it hurts their development they go too early you look at neymar neymar was the one that because he was a star santos was able to bring so many investors and he stayed until he was 21 22 so when he got to barcelona he was ready and you know maybe if he had stayed a little longer you know could have been even better but you know at that time my problem was that he didn't have the players around him you know like Pelé did you know, he didn't have the players around him like Ronaldinho did. Yeah. You know, you know, Neymar didn't have, you know, a, the original Ronaldo yeah. to finish, you know, his brilliance off. hundred you know, percent. Neymar didn't have Rivellino, you know, you know, dragging one and two defenders away from 100%. from space. Because his whole generation went to Europe at 18 years old. That's it. You know, there, there wasn't the depth of creativity, you know, and, and that's, that's what people don't understand. And the generation but, before also got lost because they went to Europe so early and they lost the focus, they lost lost the they lost the drive they lost a lot of things and you know that really hurt brazil he as you said he was by himself yeah for years but let's get back to peter vermis yeah. so he had this club meeting and uh, you know not to labor it but you know we're in the meeting and and uh, you know there's two of us from the legends club representing our club and peter was trying to get the other clubs to feed players into the sporting system uh, and, you know, he started the meeting off with an absolute shocker. He said, there's only one club in this room, represented in this room, that I truly respect. And all the clubs were represented. And he said, that's the Kansas City Legends. And, you know, Kyle Hogan, I, you know, popped our ears up. And, you know, this is unexpected, you know, because, you know, we're the biggest competitor. You know, but Peter's a straight talker. And he said, yeah, we went back through our records. And the Kansas City Legends have put more players in our professional clubs, the, the original academy. Wizards, yeah. you know, into the academy, you know, and, and the legends, he said, of the club that over the years have put more players into our, you know, Wizards, you know, sporting it's called these days, um, than all of the other clubs in Kansas City history combined. And we're sitting there, we didn't know that stat for a start. This was a complete eye-opener. We knew that we'd done extremely well over the years, you know, and, uh, but we didn't realize that we'd actually developed more players than all of the other clubs combined that had gone on and, and, you know, and joined, been given a contract with you know, the Wizards or Sporting KC. You know, and you know, to, I'm sitting there saying to myself, hey, that's great. You know, that's a big feather in our cap. Can you say that on a media press? <laughs> yeah, but here's the real question is, what did you do with that incredible talent Fair. that we sent you? Because that incredible talent all of a sudden got sucked up by the system and, and it, it was expected to play one and two touch soccer and not allowed to deceptively dribble, not allowed to take shots from 25, 30 yards, you know, not allowed to play our quick, incisive, penetrating game, you know, right in the middle of the attacking third. You know, and, and so the players that, that were recruited by Sporting Kansas City, the Wizards or whatever they were at the time, uh, ended up losing a big part of what made them incredible. You know, that's like saying to Leo Messi, you can't dribble anymore. You know, we had these young Leo Messi's that went into that system and got gobbled up by the system, you know, and, you know, and ended up not achieving 
their full capability. And some of them, you know, did well and, you know, you know, and got paid for playing and built quite a reputation, you know, uh, within, you know, our little pond here in Kansas City, but did not achieve what we felt that they were capable of achieving because they went from our go-for-it mentality, you know, our brave creative leadership, you know, and take the ball and dominate the game and make incredible things happen to you've got to fit in with the system. And so we want you to play the way you're facing. We want you to get it and give it. And, you know, and only when you get to this postage stamp area can you do your Kansas City Legends thing anymore. Well, try telling Leo Messi that he's not allowed to take on the, you know, the superstar Croatian defender, you know, and create, you know, a winning goal for his Argentinian team. I, I oftentimes think back to my career and had I not joined the Wizards Youth Training Program in 2001, I think I would have gone on to be the Leo Messi of American soccer, <laughs> if we're being honest. <laughs> No. I, I, you know, with the best will in the world, this is supposed to be a serious podcast, not a clown show. <laughs> um, but I think a lot of the problem comes from the way the club directors and you know the people involved in the decision making measure success. Ah, so they, I think, nailed it. I think you look at the coach of a youth team, and he wants to keep his job. Or he wants to, you know, make a name for himself and move up the ladder, right? Are you if, forgetting the other thing, though? Money, 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 money. Well, but that's how they measure success, right? If we talk yeah. about sporting Kansas City's youth program, not their academy, their youth program, and all these clubs and affiliates that I that we talked about earlier in the show, um, the, they measure success by the number of people paying them to put sporting on their shirt. The success is not measured by the development the, the developmental aspect, it's, it's, it's entirely um, a marketing pl play. And, and what they can sell their players on. You know, can they sell Busio to Venetia you know, for you know, uh, ridiculous money you know, yeah, and but, cash in? But Busio doesn't come from the Sporting KC. No, he's recruited he's in. He's recruited in. You know, it's, it's they, not, he's, him, they keep him a couple of years. He develops a bit more of a reputation, and they sell him on for bigger bucks. Yeah. You not know, that it's, big, but it's, it's, bigger it's, for it's American standards. <laughs> it's the churn. Mm -hmm. You know, and so, but, you know, that's inevitably, let's talk about Manchester City for a minute. You know, Manchester City's just been brought up again on financial charges. And my question is, every time, because they, you know, they fought through a, a charge earlier, they did not beat it. It got shelved. Yeah. You know, so now they're having to, you know, revisit this and they're not going to get it shelved this time. They're going to have to face it. And my guess is they're going to be found guilty of, you know, of, of breaching the financial fair play rules, you know. And, you know, then the question is, how good a coach really is Pep Guardiola? You know, when he was at Barcelona, he had a bunch of superstars. When he was at Bayern Munich, he recruited a bunch of superstars. He's been at Manchester City and he's recruited a bunch of superstars. Is he really the guru that everybody thinks he is? Or is he just the guy with the biggest wallet? That's... that's that's been the question for a long time. Yeah, he wasn't time. that great a player at Barcelona. He played at that level, but he was not the creative guy. He wasn't the famous creative guy. He was more of a workman-like player, you know. And, and so he's found a way to make a career out of being a workman-like player, getting into the coaching, you know, situation, you know, coaching at the club he grew up playing for, Barcelona, where he had great players to coach, you know, and build a name for himself. And from that point onwards, he's made incredibly good decisions about only going to the clubs that can afford to buy the best players. 
you know, so his shopping list has had all the great players in, you know, in current world, you know, uh, you know, recent world history, you know, on that list. And he's been very successful in getting a high percentage of those players to come over to Manchester City. You know, who else could have gotten Haaland, for example? And the, the guy's a phenomenon. He's left-footed. He's huge. He's faster than a speeding bullet. He's got a rocket shot. He's good in the air. You know, and, I don't yeah. think he's human. Well, the other thing is, he's not that good with the ball on the floor at his feet in terms of deceptive dribbling. But then that would be totally unfair. If he could dribble deceptively and <laughs> do Maradona turns in addition to all the other stuff. You know, I mean, you know, he, he's like, uh, I always think of Dolph Lundgren from the old Rocky movies, you know, the big Russian guy you know, with blonde hair. You know, you know, when I look at Harlan. He looks know, like a robot. Yeah, is you know it's 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 somewhat robotic, but it's fascinating yeah. because he's such a hu- superhuman, you know. Yeah. And and yet you know what's interesting is he grew up in a similar way to our players because we've got these indoor facilities and the sun always shines on indoor soccer and you know you know we always play you know and we always play in tight circumstances. That's how we grew up in Norway. You know, he grew up in the dome in his hometown in Norway, and he just went down there just every playing. night and spent hours down there just playing, you know, small-sided games and joining in with anybody and everybody when they wanted an extra player, you know. And so he's play- he just played hours a night and shot for hours a night and dribbled for hours a night and, you know, and, and just loved the game because his dad had the culture. His dad was a yep. pro soccer player, you know. And so, you know, this is what we're talking about. You've got to have the culture. You've got to have the environment, you know, and... And what he didn't have was the creativity. He didn't have somebody to show him the moves. He didn't have what we do in the Legends Club, the Maestro series, where we actually go through the moves in intimate detail. And we've got ways of teaching the moves that nobody in the world seems to have spotted. You know, and you know, I, I just I laugh at the other dribbling tapes that I see, videos, because the, the coaching is so nonspecific. You know, it's, it's, you know, I always say, like, sticking your a straw in a bowl of porridge and trying to find something solid. You can't, you know, because they're not making specific points about you've got to do this here, you know, and every Matthews fake has got to include a shoulder drop where you put the opposite shoulder in the opposite hip pocket. That point is never made when other coaches are teaching the Matthews in world soccer. And I've reviewed hundreds of these teaching methodologies with regard to these moves, and they just don't get it because they've not spent the time to get it. So they're not developing. They don't value it. They don't value it to the degree that it needs to be valued. They want to move on to the next thing real quick. So getting back to to Brazil and the legends, because this is really interesting. It's The legends are like Brazil in that we are the club of great player origin in Kansas City. Brazil is the country of great player origin, right? You know, that's the history. And so other clubs um, recruit our players like crazy. And we can't recruit anybody else's players because when they come into our teams, they're lost. You know, is it, our players have got years of, of practicing these moves. They can beat people in the one-on-one. They can, they can play wall passes and, and double passes through crowds and overlaps through crowds. And, and then, of course, finishing, we've got all these boxes. And, you know, in one 90-minute practice session, Riley Smith had 1,474 shots on goal. You know, and you can't reproduce that in an outdoor environment. 50 is the best I got in 90 minutes in an outdoor environment. 1,474 versus 50, you know, and so, you know, you're looking at everything that we do, and so players come in and they join our teams, and they're a fish out of water. They might be the best athlete in world history, 
but they can't play the game like we play the game through crowds. Like, you know, when teams pass the, park the bus on us, you know, we play through that pressure and we're able to penetrate and score great goals with moves, with shots from 30 yards. Our, field, our fields are too small for athleticism to, to make that big of an impact, which is, which exactly is exactly right. why it's so beneficial well, because for the kids of all athleticism correct. Uh, uh, levels. They, they don't, they get, they don't in, get the bad habits of just run. Yeah, and they get in the outdoor environment and, you know, they, they've got all this time and space, you know, because they've been brought up in literally playing soccer in a rabbit hutch. You know, and so, you know, they can find a way to get through the crowd. They can, you know, do moves that other players from other teams can't even conceptualize doing. Yeah. I, I had this exact thought last night, actually, during my session. I was running with my, thir- my 2013s, and um, uh, we, we did a gauntlet of seven rounds of 1v1 to kick it off, right? Um, and then we moved into the fast-paced 4v4 game, right? The, uh, the 4v4v4 game where it's transitioning and 100 miles an hour. Uh, the intensity is 12 out of 10. Um, tears aplenty, not because uh, they're, they're upset or feel like they're being cheated, but because they're that competitive. They know if they don't put the ball in the back of the net, they're off of the field and we were playing with a size one ball and I had this moment where it was Carter got the ball 2014 playing with my 2013 team in a crowd in the corner pulls off this Maradona turn splits two and then buries it far corner and I thought there is not another kid in the city in the country that doesn't train in this environment week after week after week that wouldn't come into this session and immediately uh, uh, hate it, immediately struggle. I, I think of this kid that played for the Michigan team that we played. Um, you know, he got a big old mohawk, really good player, scored, I think, three goals against us in the weekend, beat us both, both times. And I thought specifically of that kid, what he would look like stepping into, as Andy puts it, the rabbit hutch of the soccer box in Raytown uh, and, and, and playing at that speed with a size one ball, and he'd stand no chance. He would get chewed up. Chewed up. Yeah, absolutely. His ego and wouldn't his the par- so, ego of his parents wouldn't be able to take it. So you know what we do is we develop these great players that can play inside the penalty area and score goals and and you know and wall pass through the penalty area, Leo Messi style, you know, Pelé style, you know, and uh, and and then other clubs recruit the heck out of our players that they can't develop, and they use those players they recruit away from us to win games. And however like a creeping pandemic, the rot sets in and the player that left us loses what made them special and highly recruited from us in the first place. You know, and two years later, that player is unrecognizable from the player that left us because they've gone into a system and an environment that doesn't ask them to beat people in the one-on-one or the one-on-two, that doesn't ask them to use incredible fakes and moves, that doesn't challenge them to be great in the way that Brazilian society, soccer society, challenges the player to be great. You know, that's who they emulate. They emulate their heroes. They emulate the moves of Ronaldinho, of the original Rivaldo, you know, and Rivaldo and, you know, Pelé and Jairzinho and all these greats over the, you know, the decades. And that's not happening in soccer in hardly any places in North America or England for that matter. So England produces the, the greatest ever goal scorer in, in English history. Harry Kane, who just broke the record, you know, but Harry Kane hardly ever uses a move. He can't beat a player in the one-on-one. 
He's, in terms of comparison to Brazilian superstars, the English superstar, the one that scored more goals than anybody else, is left, you know, way out in left field. He's not a great player by Brazilian standards. Does that make sense? Or by world soccer standards, right? If we're going to talk about yeah, the, 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 the Argentinians, if we're going to talk about the Dutch. The summit of, of the game, yeah. yeah. The zenith of the game. You know, he's not regarded as a great player. It's it's kind of sad. And talking about these these clubs that recruit the heck of out of out of our players and you know win big big nationals and big tournaments and and whatever, um, those coaches are measured by the success of winning those tournaments instead of measuring how many kids did you get to good schools and with full rides. Or how many boys did you put in the in the professional game? That should be the measure of success and not how many games they won. These coaches want to keep their job. If you say, Hey, I don't give I don't want you I don't care if you win or not this tournament. I care about you. You have sixteen players on your team, you gotta put all sixteen in good schools with good scholarship and stuff like that. Boom. Maybe the cha- the focus would change. We we've proven though that we can coach this way and win national championships. You know, just this past weekend, our team, you know, and here we are sitting, you know, early in the year, our team qualified to go to Disney, you know, to play in the national championship, our, our 2009 girls, girls team. Who won it last year? I, I don't know. Who did win it no, last year? No, I said year? who won it last year. Yeah. They won it last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm being facetious. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Our girls, that same team, won the national championship last year, right? You know, so, you know, and they qualified again way ahead of time, months ahead of time, to go to Disney again to play in the national championship again, you know, and, you know, this team... The majority, the vast majority of this team joined us when they were how old? Four, five, six. Four, five, six, seven years of age. Happy Feet. They came out of, many of them came they, out of Happy Feet. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. This, this is the first class that came out of Happy Feet that got that individual ball work when they were, you know, two, three, four, five years of age, you know, and came out of the earlier days of the Legends Club. In this facility. In this facility this where facility. the ball doesn't escape, where there's rebound walls everywhere, where their touches are hundreds, hundreds and thousands more, you know, and the expectation is that they use incredible moves from the earliest age. We developed them. We didn't recruit them. You know, all through the years, we made them better and better and better. And we might have started with, you know, 60, 70, 80 players. We've probably still got a bunch of them because we've got a whole bunch of teams in this age group. You know, but the point is that we got these kids and the ones that were the better athletes, you know, we developed them into being one-on-one ball wizards that can score great goals. And as a result, they are winning national championships. You know, but if we were to give this team to a traditional coach in two years, they wouldn't be taking people on anymore. Yeah. They wouldn't be shooting from 30 yards. They would Mar- lose what they make, make them special. The That's margin exactly of greatness would be good. right. You know, and and uh, um, I'll give you an example. I, you know, at the end of the pandemic, six months, the, you know, the, the soccer was shut down here in Kansas City. And, uh, you know, I took my daughter out to uh, to a tryout with the biggest club in Kansas City, part of that sporting network, um, because um, her f- teammates had graduated and left our club and she'd been playing up. 
And, you know, the director of, you know, the team in her age group started telling me about these three superstars that they had in their program, you know, just waxing lyrical about these three great players. And you know what he forgot? <laughs> they were all legends. <laughs> we developed those kids for years and years and years. You know, and he was telling me, yeah, we know, yeah, Holly's a great dribbler, you know, she, you know, et cetera, you know, and we've got these three players that can take people on that score goals. And, and I'm not going to name names. That wouldn't be fair. You know, and I'm standing there and I said, um, you know, I used his name. I said, uh, you know, can I stop you there for a second? And he said, yeah. He said, did you forget that they played for us? You know, the, you know, the, you know, the, the better, the best one of the three that you're mentioning started with us when she was literally three years of age, <laughs> you know, and we developed her into that incredible goal scorer, yes. that incredible, you know, dribbler that's got the moves, etc. You know, and interestingly enough, uh, you know, she only ever in the other two the same way they, they went backwards in terms of their ability to take players on, you know, to beat people under pressure, you know, and to penetrate in tiny areas, you know, and, you know, to make the big play. You know, after a few years there, you know, they, they, they still got recruited to play in college, you know, and all three got recruited to play D1, but they don't dominate the ball. They don't dominate people like they used to. They don't try to anymore because they know they can't because they, they got rusty, you know, and so, you know, those skills were allowed to rust. Those skills became that broken down automobile in the, in the scrapyard, you know, and, and they just didn't get better at beating players and scoring goals. Had they have stayed with us, they would have continued to improve every aspect of the game. Well, it comes, it comes back to how do you measure success, right? And right. so for the parents of those girls, they, they had a successful career. They went on and played at a Division One school on a Division One scholarship. Um, but where could they have gone is the question asked. How do you measure success? Those Neymar's compatriots, um, Brazilian compatriots, right, his peers that left Brazil at 16, 17, 18 years old, of course you can look back and say they were successful, but what was their ceiling? had they not joined the the structured environment of European soccer at that age where could they have gone perhaps we'd be saying their name now um, instead of being forgotten uh, players to the professional game but were they successful I mean if you're if your measure of success is just to get a division one scholarship yeah um, but could they have played for the women's national team could they be uh, a starring role leading us into a women's world cup this summer uh, perhaps I don't know yeah, and that, that's the criticism, you know, a bunch of the commentators in Brazilian TV are players that, you know, played in the late 90s and early 2000s, and they all say the same thing. Like, it's a common theme. And you see the successful coaches of that era, they also go in interviews and they say the exact same. And also they mention about because Brazil is not winning World Cups, they're trying to mimic Europe, which is a mistake. We gotta f We got to use our culture. We gotta keep specializing in what makes us different. Why do the Europeans come to us to find the, the stars? Because what we do is different. Yeah. We can replicate yeah. what they're doing. You know, Real Madrid right now, you look at their squad, they have a, a front line of forwards, all Brazilian and one French, and you look at the midfield, French, Brazilian. What I mean, two countries that have the culture of street soccer and dribbling, and creative and play. play. See, yeah. it, here's the problem that, that I can't recall a situation where a player has left our club uh, to join another team or club that plays in, you know, in what's supposed to be the elite leagues that are going to get them recruited for college. I can't remember one situation where one of the players that has left us 
hasn't gone backwards in their ability to take people on, score, score great goals, you know, be that player that can score a hat-trick again, be that, you know, Irving Haaland, you know, equivalent, uh, you know, and, and just dominate defenders and, you know, do the things that they were doing when they played for our team. Now, here's a question, you know, let's, let's relate this to the modern game at the highest level. Would Leo Messi have been the great player he became if he had joined Real Madrid's academy? Probably not. No. Instead of La Masia. Categorically, no. Categorically, no. La Masia was ahead of its time, was creative, you know, that focused a ton on developing players that could, you know, solve that attacking third, that center of the attacking third problem, you know, and Leo Messi was the best of the big three. Who were the others? Xavi. Xavi and? Iniesta. Iniesta. You know, so, you know, and, but they didn't just develop those three. They developed a whole bunch of players that, you know, played that creative type game in their system, you know, and could do more. And so as a unit, they were powerful. And then, of course, they, they bought in a couple of superstars, you know, to add to that mix. And so now you had this incredible mix of Xavi, Iniesta, Leo Messi, alongside players like Figo, Ronaldinho. And yeah. I think that was one of the keys for Barcelona too. The the superstars they would bring were the more creative players of that time. Absolutely. So they, the first one they brought was Romario. Well, Maradona back in the days. Yes, right? yeah, yeah. Maradona. Yeah. Then they had Romario, super creative. That makes the players in their youth look up to them. Then after Romario, Ronaldo came. Then Rivaldo came. Then Ronaldinho came. So you look at the best, the four best Brazilians of that era and the best Argentine. They all went there for a period. That made the players look up to them. You you hear Leo Messi, he always talks about Ronaldinho, how much he enjoyed, you know, having Ronaldinho there. And he was coming up at 16, 17 years old. He had Ronaldinho to emulate. Do you think he wanted to play like, you know, the post goals? No, he wanted to play like Ronaldinho. That makes a difference. The, the last two World Cups, would France have won the World Cup in 2018 without Mbappé? No. Not a chance. No. Would Argentina have won this last World Cup without Leo Messi? Maybe. No, of course not. <laughs> for, for a moment, I was just going to say, you lost your ever-loving mind. You know. Wow. I can't think of actually a championship team at any level um, that more needed their superstar than the Argentinian team that we just had. Oh, 100%. Yeah, it, you know, it, one guy got them over the hump. Yep. You know, and, and there's no question about this. And uh, and so, you know, wh- what we've got is we've got all of these clubs that are all vanilla. They're all the same color. They're all boring. You know, like Winston Churchill said, I feel most sorry for the poor Browns. You know, they're poor Browns. You know, their players play the same way. They're, they're selected for their athleticism and they play a tactical system to win games. But they don't play a creative methodology to develop brave creative lead- leadership. What they need for life, you know, more than, you know, do you want to be an accountant? You know, do you want to just get a regular paycheck, you know, and win at the bank? Or do you want your life to be an adventure? Do you want to be incredible? Do you want to be creative? Do you want it to be fun? Do you want every game to be a party? You know, and, and at the same time, you know, win, be successful. And that's what I'm, I'm afraid is happening in our youth soccer culture is coaches are 
warp in the system. You know, when I used to run super clubs, I used to run the equivalent of the ECNL. I always found a way to include the single team that deserved to be in the you know my competitions. Because it wasn't fair to leave out those players, you know, and shut the door just because the overall club strength wasn't as good as one or two teams within their club. It was called super clubs, but it was really super teams, you know, and, and it was the the second tournament nationally to the USYSA National Championship. The ECNL has closed the door on clubs that do a better job of developing than a lot of clubs that they've got in order to preserve um, that unique ability to recruit players away from those other clubs that aren't perceived to have, you know, the, the big opportunity to showcase to college coaches. And so it's become a closed shop. It's being used by clubs that are no longer the top clubs in the country to recruit players in order to stay competitive. And they can you know, recruit players, including from clubs like ours, because they've got this, hey, more college coaches come and watch our players play. You know, uh, you know, benefit. The reality is that parents are being forced to give up an opportunity to learn how to be brave, how to be creative, you know, how to be a leader, you know, how to do all the good things in life while, whilst also being incredibly sportsmanlike, you know, without focusing on the win, how to win, you know, because you're just absolutely incredible, and, you know, with the ball at your feet, you can score great goals. Parents are giving that up in order to get a college scholarship. And to my mind, that's crazy. I'm more concerned with the quality of the character, you know, whether my kids are willing to take risks, whether they're willing to go for it, whether they're willing to get outside of their box and find what it is that they love in life, you know, by being uncomfortable, by going where, you know, they haven't been before. And that's the most important thing in a young child's development. I had no way of seeing that my oldest daughter was going to be an actress. You know, my second oldest was going to be a teacher, you know, and worked for us running divisions in our organization. My third born, you know, was going to be a tattoo artist and own tattoo studios. My fourth born was going to be a vegan uh, active activist living in Dahab, Egypt, you know, and hey, the, the fifth born is just a leader and still you know, at college trying to find her way and decide what she's going to do. But she, she'll know, do something big. Well, she switched down to Florida to go and, yeah. and study interior design, and she'll end up being, you know, every bit as probably accomplished as any one of the other daughters. Yeah. I had no way of seeing that, but what I did know is that the way we brought them up playing in the soccer club that we've got made them brave, creative leaders for life. You know, and they'll look a challenge in the eye and, and they'll say, You're not going to beat me. Yeah. You know, I've got the creativity, I, I've gone through the mill to develop this ability in soccer. And that leadership, that bravery, that creativity carries over into the rest of life's pursuits. That's the most important thing. And when you play for a club that focuses on winning and recruiting to win, doesn't even develop their own players, your kids are going to lose that bravery, that creativity, that leadership. There's no way to get both. If you just go to the team that's, you know, in the club that can get you in the shop window, you know, this exclusive ECNL club or whatever it is, DA club, if you go to that club, you are giving up an opportunity to be that brave, creative leader with other clubs that are more individually, creatively focused. Well said. Well and said. I'm just going to add one thing, and it's not that good to be seen, but not stand out and not be noticed. 100%. So you have to stand out. And everybody, you know, that doesn't belong in those, you know, leagues and these clubs, they also get an opportunity to be seen. 
and if they're seen and they stand out, maybe they don't need 300 coaches watching their game. Okay, and this is, this is something that I wrote, so this, I'm going to attribute this quote to me. One of the most challenging parts of existence is that people project their own values onto others. Unfortunately, many are motivated more by what's in it for them and therefore attribute this value judgment to the majority. Do the right thing with no regard to self-interest in all matters, and life will reward you with riches of the spirit in abundance. You've got to do the right thing. Develop every player to be a brave, creative leader. Don't leave any kid on the shelf. Don't pigeonhole them into right fullback, banging the ball 40 yards to your fastest player because you want to play the Bills at home and you know, you're prepared to use little kids to achieve your financial objectives. That unfortunately is what the youth system in America is doing in the majority. It's what Manchester City are doing. It's what people the worldwide are doing. They are using other people to achieve their financial goals. Oh, look at me. Don't I look good? Mm -hmm. Because my team wins, you know, a nothing youth championship, you know, by doing it the wrong way, by using children for an adult value, an ego-based, selfish adult value, winning or making money. Club directors, you know, they have to win in other clubs because if they don't win, their players will leave them and they won't be able to pay the mortgage. So they have to recruit. They have to recruit the biggest, fastest athletes. They have to win now because in six months, the parents are going to get fed up because the parents have to win. The parents are selfish. They can only see, hey, my kid, you know, you know, isn't winning, you know, and they're also not developing great skills. So now they're not developing great skills. So the, the coaches get more into how do I win the next game? How do I play to a system? And the players get less individually talented and creative mm -hmm. in our club that doesn't happen it's all about the individual making them brave creative leaders for life because we don't focus on the end statistic of every game and um and as we wrap this the, i think that's the the difference maker andy is that we measure success differently and i think that we should probably lead into our next episode uh which we'll record recording early next week centered around brave creative leadership and legends for life. I don't think we really unpeeled that uh, uh, that onion on this podcast. And I think this conversation that we've had specifically the last 15, 20 minutes leads us as a great segue into that. Well, you know, I wrote a whole book on it, you know, yep. and, and so, you know, that's something that we, we've really only dealt in the majority with the topics in the first book. Yeah. Which is all about coaching philosophy. And then we threw in, you know, the, the, you know, the episodes on Ash Ashington and the environment, you know, but, you know, there's a whole nother book that I'm kind of like ghostwriting behind the other books. And that's, that's culture, mm -hmm. you know, and how important the culture is, you know, that we establish, you know, not just the environment, not just the coaching philosophy and not just the leadership emphasis. There's four incredibly important legs to this stool without one of them, the stool is still going to fall over. Yeah. You know, you've got to have all four in order to you know, develop a, 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 as complete a human as you can using the sport of soccer as the vehicle. Yep. And you know what? Nobody else is doing it like we're doing it. Nobody. Blue Ocean. Worldwide, I, I can't get people to put facilities with box soccer courts in here. I, I just wrote up an article this week you know, pointing out that we've got close to 300 individual walls in this facility. Just this facility alone, 300 individual walls when you walk around this facility. It's like 294. That's 
unbelievable. Think of the rebounds that you get. Think of the repetition. Think of how good you get at finishing and of also passing. If you're a great finisher, you're a great passer. Just because we've got lots of walls. But then think out oh, there in small spaces. Think how you can absolutely smash the ball and it will come straight back to you. You don't have to chase balls. You know, that your repetition factor goes through the roof because we, we create boxes where kids can just beat up on each other or get in there on their own, you know, and beat up on the ball for an hour. Yep. You know, and it's just incredible. And, you know, it's not a crazy idea because that's how the world's greatest players grew up playing the game by using walls in their favelas in Sao Paulo or Rio de Janeiro. Yep. I, I butchered that, didn't I? No, you nailed oh, it. Just yeah. like Puchabal's <laughs> just alone. All right. With that said, until next time, Andy, Philippe, another great episode. Well done, guys. See you. Thanks, guys.